Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Anshuman Razdan, or AR, Vice President for Research and Innovation at the University of Oregon. Prior to his UO appointment, AR served as the Associate Vice President for Research Development at the University of Delaware from 2016 to 2022. Before serving at the University of Delaware, AR had a 20-year career at Arizona State University, where he was a professor of computing, informatics, and decision systems engineering, and held a number of key administrative posts. Thanks so much, AR, for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. So first, tell us a little bit about your background. Where are you from? Oh, where I'm from? Uh, and, you know, any aspect of your background? Uh, you sure, sure, sure. Uh, so I uh, was born and raised in India, in northern part of India, about 100 miles west of New Delhi. Um, and uh, like a typical immigrant graduate story, I came at 21 to, after my bachelor's of engineering, to do my master's and, and uh, then I had a transition from my undergraduate training from a mechanical engineer to computer sciences. I got interested in um, computer graphics and 3D computer geometry. Uh, those were things that were taking off in the late 80s and I turned, became a computer scientist. But an important aspect of my upbringing, I would say, has been shaped by um, by my father, who was also a faculty um, in an ag university in India. So I grew, literally grew up on the campus uh, because there was housing there. Uh, another aspect of that is that I, he was an uh, animal husbandry uh, person, and so he would hold camps and villages, uh, some during my summer break, uh, to work with farmers and to help make the breeds better and uh, and so I accompanied him and I spent a lot of time because it was fun to go with dad uh, but I think that's where the seeds of uh, social and economic impact uh, were uh, driven home uh, when you see a farmer really be happy and you know uh, and its economic uh, conditions improve so I think that I didn't realize it then but uh, that's has a great amount of impact in me staying in academia and doing what I do today has been a long arc, but I think the seeds were sown then. So let's go back and talk a little bit about your own work, your own research. So give us a sense of the work you've done with spatial modeling. It's really interesting. Uh, uh, that's uh, also an interesting story. So uh, my uh, Specific work is in 3D geometry and, and what we call as splines um, and the mathematics behind it. And uh, during my PhD, I started to work with a professor of sculpture. And this is mid, early to mid 90s. Um, 3D, three dimensional scanners, uh, laser scanners were just very expensive or were beginning to be available. And uh, they produce a lot of data, um, triangle meshes. And he was looking for a counterpart to help him with the technology. And he looked at it from an art and sculpture perspective as digital. And I looked at that from a 
technology perspective as a computer scientist involved in geometry. And I think that was also an important lesson that shaped my career is as a computer scientist, how do you make horizontal connections with other disciplines while you raise each of those disciplines vertically? And there the seeds of interdisciplinary collaboration were born in very, in an unlikely manner of a, a professor of sculpture talking to a computer scientist in those days. And um, so then I stayed at Arizona State University and we formed a new center uh, called PRISM Partnership for Research in Spatial Modeling. And an interesting sort of ironic twist of that story is that um, sometime in the mid-90s, late mid-90s, there was a call from NSF from Computer Science Directorate asking for interdisciplinary proposals. And so we submitted a significant proposal that involved computer science and digital sculpture and physical anthropology. And it was not funded with the reviewers' remarks were when we said interdisciplinary, we meant hardware people talking to database people. <laughs> we didn't mean this interdisciplinary. So in a way, it was a, um, a, a mixture of laughter and tears. Uh, but then that subsequently led to some other successes later on with, with the same premise as we have all woken up to the impact of interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary um, uh, interactions that can really make these advances besides the narrow traditional way of looking at just advancing your field only. So one of the stories that you've told that I found particularly interesting is your, your work uh, collaborating with a team at Mount Vernon to reconstruct George Washington's face at different stages of his life. So tell us about that project. Um, uh, thanks for asking. So that was, that was a very interesting project. So in early 2000s, uh, Mount Vernon was looking to celebrate 250th anniversary of George Washington becoming a British officer. And uh, they were thinking about different, um, different areas. And I believe the Ford Foundation was going to also build a new section segment uh, or a, a new building for them. And so they were um, trying to think of doing something beyond the usual and putting artifacts out. So they approached um, a colleague, a physical anthropologist uh, from University of Pittsburgh, who uh, by the time sort of our, this cross-disciplinary work, you know, an openness to work with, uh, uh, with other disciplines uh, must have reached him. And so he approached me and the professor of sculpture, Dan Collins at Arizona State, to see if we would collaborate with him. And so that's how it came about. And the um, um, sort of the plan was, how do we take um, the uh, image, loosely speaking, of George Washington, which um, over a period of time, if you, uh, if you research this, 
most of the paintings about George Washington were done by uh, artists after his death. So there was very few portraits done. So the idea was how to discover the real George Washington. And uh, they wanted to then do it in three dimension. And, uh, and our um, uh, source of inf information, since we can't exhume the you know, body and, um, and, and scan actual stuff, was uh, a bust by Houdon. Uh, French sculptor who had come to Mount Vernon when he was 53. Um, so just for uh, our audience, so at uh, 19, uh, George entered the British, you know, as an officer in the British Army. At 45 is the famous crossing of the Delaware. Um, and then he went back to Mount Vernon uh, thinking he was retired. And at 53, this Udan bust was done, and at 57 he took oath as the president. So that's key important timeline. And so, um, and the way Houdan had done the bust was to take, in those times they called it the death mask, mm -hmm. although this was a live mask, uh, and then use that to create um, uh, his sculpture. And so that was the best thing we had access to, uh, and the bust had not been brought out uh, of its case in several decades, I think 40 or 50 years. So that was a harrowing experience in, uh, to be having these 3D scanners so close and I had to sign all sorts of insurance and waivers and stuff. Um, but uh, so that was that and then there is a sculpture um, that Houdon did of Washington which is stands in the rotunda of the Capitol in um, uh, capital of Virginia in Richmond. So we did full body scans and 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 uh, looked at various things. So we had a good accurate portrait of George at 53. So then the goal was how do you make George of 21, 45 and 57. Now there's an interesting part of uh, George Washington's life um, and in those days because of poor dental health, oral health, and no antiseptics and all those things being available, people um, lost teeth regularly. And by 53, George had only one tooth left. Uh, again, a side ironic uh, story how uh, things become fables. So George was always commented by his peers as the person who listened carefully, didn't speak much, and when he would speak at the end of a meeting, for example, it'd be very profound and everybody would, you know, uh, it'd be like the final conclusion and summary and his respect rose as a result of that. Very few people realized that he didn't speak much because he was constantly in oral pain, mm -hmm. right? And he had some dentures made and stuff like that. So we scanned that, uh, we scanned the live uh, mask. And then the hard work really started uh, which was to de-age him. And when you lose teeth, not from an accident, but over a gradual period of time, and there is collapse of the oral cavity. So we had to work that backwards. And then we got skeletal remains of a soldier who was about 6'4", 220 pounds. Um, and uh, uh, we were able to scan his 
upper and lower jaw and mm -hmm. then try to fit the geometry and modify uh, what we scanned from George's sculpture, which was the outer skin, uh, and how that would fit. And then basically reworked as George with a complete set of teeth at 21. And then um, at 45, uh, you know, crossing the Delaware, and then at 57, taking oath. The three statues of George stand in the Ford Museum at Mount Vernon today. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the story of, uh, you know, George in 3D recreated. <laughs> it's also a great uh, story of um, the interest of interdisciplinary research. Absolutely. So couldn't have done without my colleagues in uh, anthropology, but also with artists, right? Um, one of the things I'm told is artists don't like to paint hands. <laughs> and so um, getting the hands the right size and, and the rest of the body, there was some artistic you know, influence in that. And so, um, uh, and also in terms of posture, sitting on a horse, which is the 45-year-old uh, George Washington. Yeah, I couldn't have done that. It was fantastic because, you know, the. The best part of this, I have to say, is if there are three disciplines working, I'm the one-third part of it, and two-third parts of it, I'm a student of what other two disciplines are doing. And to me, that's fascinating. To me, that's a way of saying that I can learn about those two disciplines without having to take ever an exam and worry about my <laughs> grade point average, which I would have flunked as an art student, you know. But now, uh, actually, that some of those things resulted in a uh, joint class that uh, I and Dan Collins offered on on visualization, and it was bringing technology and art together uh, to. It was a, senior and graduate level class that we, we, it came about, so. Fascinating. So, you left the University of Arizona and you, uh, Arizona, Arizona State, State, sorry, 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 <laughs> and you went to the University of Delaware. So tell us, share with us one of your major accomplishments, which you're most proud of from being at University of Delaware. Um, so, uh, one of the things that very publicly, I can talk about uh, you know which 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 is in public forum, is the uh, uh, data science institute. So that was a very interesting also genesis to that. Uh, when I got there in 2016, uh, there was a call from NSF to uh, create these data science centers um, for research, and um, we had a classical element of math and statistics and computer science and electrical engineering. All I was trying to bring them together from a team formation and no senior faculty would really volunteer and it fell on junior faculty to do this. And voila, surprise, we had a massive failure. But from that failure, uh, from the ashes rose the phoenix, and understanding that if we have to do this, we have to do this in a really uh, systematic way, which led to um, uh, us organizing a thematic con um, workshop across the university, across all disciplines, 
we generated a white paper that really laid out the path for cluster hiring and, and actually building a new data science institute. So just the whole process and uh, maybe that's the uh, theme of my life is first there is a failure which leads to success uh, because uh, um, which is not uh, different than a lot of serial entrepreneurs <laughs> in fact, right? Uh, and, and so that has been very successful. That's, that's one public um, kind of a success story that I can share. So what attracted you to the University of Oregon? Um, potential of impact. So uh, one of the things, like I shared with you, the seeds were sown at Arizona State as the university has, has grown bigger and bigger, it sort of became evident to me that um, if I wanted to really have an impact, I wanted to go to a, a somewhat smaller university that over a period of time I actually get to know the faculty on one-on-one -on -one basis and develop a rapport. And that's how I thought and I think that uh, is most impactful um, is getting to know the soul of the university. And so those six years were, you know, full of a lot of different successes. Um, but um, so when um, the, uh, I was approached for the University of Oregon, I looked long and hard. Um, and to me, it seemed like really good bones a um, lot of potential, and perhaps I could bring um, some organizational leadership skills to help the university move forward. I never really wanted to go to an institution where if everything was a well-oiled machine, that I would just be spending my time at the desk approving stuff. I want to be doing stuff and making a difference. And I think uh, uh, University of Oregon, I think, provides that sandbox. So that, that was really attractive. And I must say, um, I discovered throughout through my interview process that nature has been extremely kind to the state of Oregon. And it's not a bad place to live. Um, so um, love Eugene, love what Oregon has to offer besides the university aspect of it. So. So um, what have you learned about research at U of O? What's the one or two things that have surprised you or interested you about the research that's done here? Um, so I have to say that uh, I've always been at institutions with very strong engineering colleges. Uh, what is different about U of O is its uh, legacy in um, natural sciences, you know, life sciences and physics, chemistry, but also I think immense amount of scholarship in, in arts and humanities. Eugene is sort of like a Santa Fe <laughs> of the Northwest. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a place where uh, uh, those things have flourished. And so, so it's a slightly different set of uh, elements and then at the same time, uh, the night campus and the uh, trajectory that is taking um, and, and having, looking 
at it from what are the cross-disciplinary um, interactions. I call them collisions in a positive way. What collisions can we create so that collectively we can advance forward? So uh, learning more about things like um, Institute of Neuroscience or Molecular Biology and a 60-year legacy um, uh, and having a marine biology center on the coast. So those are, you know, uh, those are um, kind of interesting new things. Um, one thing I say is that in my job as administrator of a research enterprise, 80% of the things are same from university to university, you know, essentially uh, in terms of the processes. Two things that are significantly different are how the local legislature and local government um, supports uh, the university or that interaction. And the second part is um, the community, uh, which at large, uh, what I mean by that is starting from industry, uh, university interaction, the local strengths, um, uh, the art community, the humanities community, and, and those kind of interaction. You don't, those relationships, you can't take it from one place to another, so you have to start building them from scratch and learning about them uh, scratch. So that's part of being my effort to, to kind of immerse myself in that. So what do you, what's your view on the role of the humanities and the humanistic social sciences in the research enterprise of an R1 public university? Well, I'll take even a step back, and I may not be uh, even correctly paraphrasing uh, Richard Florida, but, um, but the, uh, the artists and the humanities are the soul of the society. Um, and without that, you know, we might as well have an army of robots. As an engineer, you know, that's great, but, but um, I think that you miss the, the whole fundamental part of, the, uh, of what makes us a human. So number one, that element, whether it is music, any form of art in the humanities, um, if it's not vibrant, uh, if it's not part of the fabric, if it's not part of the culture, then I don't think society as a whole of that city, of that community, has any, um, uh, from a long-term survival perspective, the chances are dim. So that's, so starting from that basis, um, the integration and that convergence and collisions are important. Secondly, with my own experience of working with archaeologists, anthropologists, and, and artists, I think we can find um, a lot of common ground between uh, the sciences and the arts and the humanities. Um, we have examples of, uh, you know, digital arts, digital humanities. Um, so if you think about data science, that touches all aspects of it. In fact, the art artists um, and probably digital humanists probably pushed the you know, technologists to what something that was never imagined by the technologists, right? So that's that's important um, push and pull that is there. You talked about the, the research. So in my own experience, um, you know, we won 
many, many multi-million dollar grants involving, um, you know, uh, there was a debate when we hit our first uh, $2.5 million grant. As I told you, the first one got rejected. There was a big debate about whether to put the professor of sculpture as a co-PI on an NSF grant. I'm talking about 1997, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Um, and I said, why not? And, you know, and so uh, I think it's um, the approach, the attitude, and the aptitude that you approach these things, I think, make it much more inclusive. Um, in the, whether we are producing the next generation of workforce, first of all, it needs to be, you just don't create an engineer or a, s a scientist, you know, they need to be well-rounded, right? So there is right there, you are making an impact on uh, this next generation that's, uh, um, that is very important for our survival, right? So, and then I think there is, there is, uh, room for, you know, NEH, NEA type of uh, uh, opportunities. But I think the bigger opportunities come from the, uh, from intersection of the disciplines. So uh, I'm very enthused. Uh, in fact, um, your institute is part of that vibrant fabric of the, of my office as one of the institutes. And I think there's a lot of potential we can, we can work, work on together. Great. So um, a couple of goals you have for this academic year. Uh, <laughs> I pause because uh, <laughs> there are so many, um, uh, you know, uh, juggling acts uh, yeah, sure. one has to do. Um, I think first is, um, understanding, listening. I do a lot of uh, coffee and learns um, with a lot of faculty. Getting essence of what faculty want to do, what our strengths are. You can't accentuate, you can't support that until and unless you really learn about that thing. So that's one very significant goal. And then um, it is sort of a next logical step in that is to figure out <clears throat> how can I help. The research office is a service organization um, and uh, we are the scaffolding. You as a faculty are the person of ideation. You know, you are the expert in your own discipline. I can't create those ideas, but I sure can be your scaffolding. I can supply you the bricks as you build the building, uh, use that metaphor. So we are a service-oriented organization. Uh, we want to improve our services to our faculty. Um, specifically, um, you know, we, we used to uh, do these uh, seed grants in humanities. There were I think $7,000. Um, I don't know if it's come out yet, but sh shortly, if it hasn't, we're increasing that to $10,000. And I want to also, that extra $3,000, uh, 
is an incentive for faculty to engage a student or for travel or for other uh, things because I want to also make sure that the students are getting included in these seed grants. So uh, that's one simple example of how I want to make sure that these uh, great ideas that you all have get that support and uh, because you got to nurture the seeds before they become saplings, before they become, you know, big corn stalks. So, <laughs> so we've just got about a minute left. Yes. Um, final question. Um, share with us an interesting or enjoyable experience you've had since coming to Oregon. Uh, I would say uh, two parts to it. One, um, the collegiality and people. Couldn't ask for a better. Um, uh, welcoming environment, um, a lot of patience, a lot of love uh, and welcome that uh, I and my wife feel part of being the community. And then second I mentioned um, last month or so we went to Waldo Lake and just the pristine water and again going back to nature being kind to Oregon, um, totally blown away. So Oregon has so much to offer to uh, add to the reservoir of our, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, to help drive what we do day to day. So both of those things. Well, thank you, AR, for taking the time to speak with us today out of your very busy schedule. We really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. I've been speaking with Anshuman Razdan, or AR, the Vice President for Research and Innovation at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching. <laughs>